Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, bats, RNA, and skin cream. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. David Steenblock, who will discuss umbilical cord stem cell therapy. Also, we'll find out what the Mersenne Prime is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm kind of batty. So you're a creature of the night. I try to be all throughout the day, but I keep falling asleep during the... <laughs> so uh, I guess the sudden thirst for blood, is that what you mean? Not blood, but milk maybe. Well, I guess bats, they are mammals, so they do produce milk. Uh-huh. I haven't ever had bats milk. Mm-mm. So speaking of bats, an evolutionary biologist has found out that in bats, at least, there's a correlation between bats that have higher mental capacity, which is correlated to uh, smaller testes and uh, vice versa. <laughs> is there like some sort of evolutionary trade-off between the size of the genitals and the size of the brain? Well, some two characteristics that could help bat pass their genes the next generation. One is to simply produce more sperm. To have bigger testes, they produce more sperm. The other is to have a higher mental capacity so they can uh, navigate their way around the environment, adapt to changes more easily. Uh, but these and, don't seem like they're mutually exclusive. Why can't you have a smart bat that's also producing a lot of sperm? Ah, uh, so it takes a lot of energy to you know, develop either your sperm or your brain, uh-huh. and there's not enough to do both. It's a trade-off. I bet the bat that produces a lot of sperm is much happier, though. <laughs> Probably. It turns out the smart bat is not so successful. <laughs> which could explain why certain slackers and humans seems to be more successful with the ladies. Where do you focus your time and energy, I guess? Well, I'm neither smart nor productive. So. <laughs> the strange middle ground. I wonder how that works. It's probably an unstable equilibrium. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if people want to learn more about their brains or their testes, where can they go? Uh, there was a very nice article in Popular Science, and this was work carried out by Scott Picnic at Syracuse University. Well, since we like to talk about things related to sex and genetic inheritance, let's move on to mice now. That's mice. my favorite animal. Yeah, they're changing the rules of genetics as we speak. I thought they were the manipulating human events and determining the course of our history. Yes, because they're trying to figure out what the question is to 42. It's the question that mystifies us, huh? Mice, for of course, quite some time have been a useful model for studying genetic processes. Uh-huh. And what a group of researchers in France have discovered is that RNA might actually be playing a role in genetic inheritance. So, I mean, everyone's familiar that DNA is thought to be the main carrier of genetic information, and RNA is just sort of this go-between. But what it looks like is there's a group of mice that are able to pass down a genetic instruction code on RNA mm-hmm. for a certain pigmentation color on their tails. When mammals, or particularly mice, reproduce, they pass along information through DNA, right? Or are are there segments of RNA that's all transferred along the reproductive uh, cycle? Yes, the RNAs that are transferred within the sperm of either the male or the female uh-huh. apparently get reproduced in the growing embryo and can become expressed as the uh, organism grows. So I guess DNA is overrated, huh? Uh, we're finding out more and more that DNA is just this sad pretender to the throne. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sitting there in the nucleus thinking it's all big and hot. <laughs> I say a curse on you, DNA, and all your household. <laughs> so again, it's fascinating work, and it's extending the role that RNA could possibly play mm-hmm. in terms of genetic inheritance. Yeah, if anyone's concerned that their uh, DNA may be not enough, uh, not necessary. <laughs> I guess you could either extract your DNA or you can read this article published in a recent edition of Nature. 
Okay, speaking of mice, do you know how to make them beautiful? Pet them, clean them, makeup, mascara. <laughs> and a little bit of skin nice. cream, right? Helps yeah, if you show a little bit of skin. Actually, that's what this uh, physics professor, Igor Sokolov at Clarkson University did. He got some hairless mice and he created a skin cream containing different types of emollients and basically see how they could prevent the skin from aging. Hmm, okay. So what he did was uh, using atomic force microscopy, he found out that with older epithelial cells, the skin cells, there was more polymerization of the F-actin, a filamentous fiber, and that's what causes the rigidity that you see in older skin. What he thought was, well, maybe a way to block this polymerization effect of happening, and there's several compounds out there which seems effective, including cytokalicin, lutransilin, and various other compounds. And so he made these skin creams using these inhibitors and applied them to hairless mice. And what he found out was after five months, the mice that had the cream, those mice actually had softer skin after five months. You know, I always thought F-actin was the biggest enemy out there, and now I've been proven right. <laughs> Another curse on F-actin and all of its household. Does this promise then skin creams then for the future for humans, I would imagine, right? Yeah. So I, Similar I mechanism must exist, they right? They didn't do this earlier, but at least if you find out what the chemical and physical basis of aging is, mm -hmm. maybe you can actually attack it at a molecular level. Right, and turn back the clock. Maybe. Now what he's trying to do is applying a little bit of the cream around his eye, and it seems he's getting fewer wrinkles. So maybe natural compounds like cucumbers, for example, have natural F-actin inhibitors. Right. This is the main issue of nanomedicine, nanotechnology, biology, and medicine. All right, and finally, Frank, do you keep in good touch with your relatives? Yeah, I seem to see at least each of them once a year. Even your most distant relatives? My cousin. Or like chimpanzees? Oh, chimpanzees. Well, even more distant than that, I have two parents at home. Well, what are they, your great-great-uncle? Possibly, I don't know. <laughs> so it turns out that researchers for quite some time have been wondering how exactly humans diverge from the other primates. Was it a sudden uh, separation and speciation, or was there actually some interbreeding that went on for a while before humans actually finally split off? I thought, according to Dianetic, humans came from this ship that landed on the planet like 60 thousand years ago. Oh yeah, and L. Ron Hubbard is like some messiah, is that right? I guess so. Now we're going to get hate mail from all the Scientologists. <laughs> but it must be a science because it's got Scientology in the name, right? Yeah. So researchers have been looking at the genomes of various primate species and comparing their sequences to actually try and determine whether or not they can pinpoint areas of evolutionary divergence. And they were comparing the X chromosome in a number of species, and it seems like there's enough similarities in the sequences to suggest that there was a period in which precursor humans interbred for quite some time with other primates before they finally split off into humans. And do they have bigger brains or bigger testes? Or <laughs> <laughs> They don't mention the testy brain link, in, presumably because they weren't interbreeding with bats. <laughs> This is sort of a controversial finding, and this actually was work that was done by David Reich of Harvard Medical School in Boston. But a number of other researchers are looking at Reich's method for estimating the genetic divergence. For example, anthropologist Jeffrey Schwartz at the University of Pittsburgh doesn't see much merit in the new findings, and he says that as the uh, techniques evolve to compare sequences, you'll find that these similarities to other primates are probably best tenuous. And he says that this hybridization hypothesis pushes the limits of credulity. Hmm. It's a finding not without controversy, but that's what we like in science, right? The mystery. The mystery of the unknown, because that keeps us with a job, really. <laughs> it's fucking funny, man. Yeah. We're competing for issues. Yes, indeed. And lab space. Can't forget about that. Oh, okay. If anyone's interested in reading more about this, they can take a look. It's a recent report published in Nature. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments... Dr. David Steenblok joins us to talk about umbilical cord stem cells, so stay right there.
welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, while there's still controversy over the use of embryonic stem cells and the questionability over the use of adult stem cells, uh, scientists have been looking at another alternative, human umbilical cord stem cells for promoting healing in many conditions. Well, joining us today is uh, one of the leading researchers in this field, Dr. David Steenblock, and he's written a very fascinating book, Umbilical Cord Stem Cell Therapy. Dr. Steenblock, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. First of all, um, could you tell us a little bit about your book and what exactly is the umbilical cord stem cell? Well, this is the first book in the world that I know of that shows the healing power of stem cells with actual cases of cerebral palsy, uh, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, stroke, diabetic retinopathy, multiple sclerosis, etc. Uh, so this is a chance for people who are interested in the latest and greatest uh, information on this, these stem cells as a method of healing and regenerating damaged tissues. Uh, this is a chance to see exactly where we are at in terms of this kind of therapy. There's no other book out on this topic. Umbilical cords, uh, of course, are the tubes of uh, that the, the mother uses to connect uh, to her baby, and that tube connects uh, the uterus, the womb of the mother, to the baby and mm-hmm. provides the baby with all of the nutrition and oxygen it needs for its normal growth and development. At the time of birth, the baby uh, exits the vagina, and uh, somebody uh, hopefully uh, picks the baby up and puts it in its bassinet, and in that process, then they always cut the cord. We've always keep hearing about uh, sometimes the father gets to cut the cord and all that. So they cut the cord, and that leaves then the cord intact with the placenta. The uh, mother expels that as well, and now you have a placenta and an umbilical cord. Normally, that is just thrown in the trash, and that's the end of it. But what we found is that you can take the blood from that particular combination, and from that blood you can extract stem cells. Mm-hmm. Stem cells are somewhat like seeds that we use to plant in our garden for flowers and whatnot. And uh, these seeds uh, in human form uh, form uh, a total human being. And so <clears throat> a stem cell by the very most important stem cell is the zygote where the egg and the sperm come together and form this zygote. That's the beginning of a human. Mm-hmm. And that is the, the first stem cell that we have in our life. And from there on, then those cells multiply, and as they start to develop into different organs, they, are, they form other stem cells, which are derivatives of that primary stem cell. And these uh, derivative stem cells then become liver and bone and brain and muscle and skin and all these different organs. And these are multipotent stem cells, and these multipotent stem cells have the ability to, um, to become different organs, but they cannot become a whole total human being. And so the controversy arises between embryonic stem cells, which is the kind of stem cell that can become a total human being, and the use of multipotent stem cells, which are the cells that we uh, have found useful that we derive from the umbilical cord. So are these the so-called adult stem cells? or They classify. For some reason, somebody decided that the umbilical cord blood stem cells were classified as adult stem cells, but as far as I can tell, from a biological point of view, they are almost identical, if not identical, to the kind of stem cells that you find in the six-week-old human fetus. So Mm -hmm. uh, we have the one that I was talking about was the primitive embryonic stem cell where you have the egg and the the sperm come together, that forms a zygote, 
then you have once that has grown into a fetus or an embryo i guess it's called anything a baby before two months of age is called an embryo and so when they they do an abortion of a, a six-week-old baby in the mother they take that tissue out that's called embryonic tissue and they therefore call those embryonic stem cells as well but that's a different thing than the embryonic stem cell that the laboratory researchers are talking about where they're taking the egg and the sperm and putting it together and having the zygote that is what the scientists are using to try to make into drugs uh, the aborted fetus uh, of six weeks of age those are being used clinically in Russia and a few places around uh, but generally most everybody agrees that those should not be used but those stem cells uh, are identical to the umbilical cord stem cells so you don't have to do the abortion is what we're saying you can use the umbilical cord stem cells you get just as good a result uh, as if you aborted the fetus without so here we get the same effectiveness of the stem cells but without having any uh, death of humans it's well known that when people have uh, organ transplants, there's always issues with histocompatibility and uh, organ rejection. Um, ideally, wouldn't you want your treatment to come from your very own uh, stem cells? That's right, and um, that is called autologous stem cell transplantation. Basically, you take fat from your backside or your front side, wherever there's excess amounts of fat, and uh, you can extract that and process that and within a few hours uh, obtain stem cells that you can then turn around and treat yourself with. And so that is uh, the thing that's going to wind up being the most popular way of doing it, uh, except for those cases where there's congenital problems or the person is very old and, uh, and their, their stem cells are old, all that kind of thing. So, But for the average person, the 65-year-old, uh, whatnot, the fat-derived mesenchymal stem cells, I think, are, are going to become... The stat, that's the way that we're going to go if we have any kind of rational thought in the uh, bureaucratic uh, system, <laughs> which is a big question mark. So based on this uh, initial finding on the uh, umbilical cord stem cells, you know, would you recommend people uh, save a sample of their, uh, of their umbilical cords for a future, you know, well, I think that's a, a matter for each person to decide. The, there's a lot of cost involved in terms of, of you know, initially it's like $2,000, $2,500, plus then $200 a year. And you're betting that with that money that your child is going to come down with cancer of some type. There's, uh, you know, not most, most children don't get cancer. And then if you do get cancer, are you going to have to have severe, you know, chemotherapy and radiation that kills all your bone marrow, so you'll need those stem cells. So... If you do save them and you happen to have a child that does come down with cancer, you'd be very glad that you save them. Most people will not have that happen, so there's going to be a lot of cord blood stored that is not going to be used for the child. And In this country, in general, you can't use that blood for pretty much anybody else because of the way the law is set up. So in your book, you describe some of the conditions that these uh, stem cells have been used for. Uh, could you describe some of them, perhaps? Yeah, in the book, we have a number of cases of cerebral palsy, uh, ALS, stroke, diabetic retinopathy, multiple sclerosis. In terms of cerebral palsy, we've seen children who are totally blind who were able to gain their eyesight. So they've gone from not seeing a thing to being able to see and, and get around and, uh, and learn because of that. So that's a tremendous and dramatic uh, result. I've seen some other things that are not in the book, and that's like macular degeneration. We've had patients that were totally blind from macular degeneration who regained their eyesight. 
Did you have to regenerate the organ structure in their eyes? Apparently so. Apparently so. And it worked. And apparently it works. So uh, at least uh, that's uh, so far uh, we're seeing good results. Now the ophthalmologists puzzle over it and don't understand how and why it works, but uh, I'm not into understanding how and why it works as much as making sure that it does work and then letting you know that it does work and let the the real scientists uh, who are have nothing to do but uh, play around with their, their little mice and rats, uh, they can uh, figure that kind of thing out, how it works. But in reality, if you put together enough stem cells into the cerebral circulation by catheter, you put a thread of catheter up through the femoral artery up into the brain, up into, through the carotid artery into the circle of Willis and infuse mannitol to open up the blood-brain barrier and then infuse a variety of different kinds of stem cells, including neural progenitor stem cells. The neural progenitor stem cells have the ability to uh, change and become retinal tissue. Amazing. <laughs> this is some very, very exciting work. The book is Umbilical Cord Stem Cell Therapy, and you can get it from uh, our office. My office is in Mission Viejo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called the Brain Therapeutics Medical Clinic, and that number is 800-300-1063. 800-300-1063. And do you also have a website that people can, yeah, people you can get? Yeah, uh, you can order the book at cord, C-O-R-D, stem, S-T-E-M, cell, C-E-L-L, book.com. Cord, stem, cell, book.com. Could you uh, perhaps tell us a little bit more about your uh, institute? It's a, uh, my institute is the Steenbach Research Institute. It's located in San Clemente. And what we do is we uh, answer people's questions about stem cells and stem cell therapies. Uh, we can direct you to different locations around the world. And what we do is we ask you to fill out forms uh, beforehand and after. And so that way we can keep track as much as we can of your progress and results and not result, you know, if you did get results or don't get results and all that kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of variables that are involved, and uh, well, I would recommend generally call my office at 800-300-1063 and ask for an appointment with me if you're considering doing stem cells because uh, somebody with some knowledge needs to review your medical records, and generally we like to order certain blood tests to determine if you have any uh, inhibited inhibitory factors or uh, anything that is in your bloodstream that would prevent you from having a good clinical result. So we want to make sure that uh, if you do go out of the country to get this therapy, which is what you have to do right now, uh, if you do go out of the country, you need to try to make sure that you get the best result possible. So we want to make sure you go to the right people that uh, do the right technique and have uh, good, clean uh, stem cells and see there's no problems with uh, contamination and all that kind of thing. And uh, you can, can, can be assured then that uh, you're getting a, a good product and, uh, and everything's safe. That number is, uh, and that doctor to talk to there is Dr. Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, and uh, 949-248-7034, 949-248-7034, if you want to know more about stem cells in terms of where to go to get them and all that. Dr. Steenblock, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And we were just talking to Dr. David Steenblock, author of Umbilical Cord Stem Cell Therapy. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KALX. In a few moments, the Grogatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
Uh, welcome back to Berkeley Grogs. Well, Dr. Steamblock has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. Uh, this week's question is, embryonic, umbilical cord, or adult stem cells? And here are five subjects. Subject number one, Oprah Winfrey, umbilical cord, embryonic, or adult stem cell? Um, umbilical cord. Okay, so she's somewhere where she has all the advantages. All right, subject number two, uh, super pop star Michael Jackson. <laughs> well, he doesn't have much fat on his body, <laughs> uh, and he likes children, so he'd probably be a good one for umbilical cord. <laughs> umbilical cord, okay. <laughs> All right, subject number three, Star Wars character Yoda. Oh, Yoda. Well, Yoda needs to become a new human being, so I'd give him embryonic. Embryonic. <laughs> All right, uh, subject number four, I guess, a, uh, a movie character of a different type, uh, super spy agent James Bond. Well, knowing his predilection toward mammary tissue, and mammary tissue is composed of fat, I would suggest he would want to take, take fat and uh, use that to generate <laughs> fat-derived stem cells. Uh, <laughs> Touche. <laughs> All right, and finally, our perennial... Uh, Subject, President of the United States, George W. Bush, embryonic, adult, or umbilical well, cord stem cell? This is only a dream. This man hates embryonic stem cells so much in terms of their use and research and everything. He might actually have a conniption fit and die <laughs> if he were to be given them himself. So I would vote to give Do George Bush embryonic stem cells. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well said. Well, Dr. Steenbach, thanks for joining us on All this right. week's Grokotron 5000. All right. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Hope you had fun. All right. And on this week's product review, we have Carrie Sharbo from Casemate. Certainly the Mac Book Pro has been a hit this year, and one of the, the great accessories I've had a pleasure using is the handle by Casemate. And today, uh, Ms. Sharbo is going to tell us a little bit about some of their current offerings. Uh, Ms. Sharbo, thanks for joining us today. Well, Frank, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm really glad that you are enjoying the handle so far. It's nice knowing that you're not squeezing the lid every time you take out of the bag. Yeah, not squeezing the lid, and it's just an easy way to, I guess, use your MacBook Pro um, and carry it around, get it from place to place. So tell us, uh, what are some of the uh, newer things that you're coming out with? Well, um, this summer we're going to be um, expanding our product line in terms of our iPod arena. Um, you know, accessories for the iPod never seem to get old. Um, one of the things that we're going to be introducing this summer and should well be out well after the uh, program airs is uh, our soft cases, which is a uh, line of iPod cases that uh, have a flip cover. Right now, our signature line of cases has an exposed uh, video screen and an exposed scroll wheel so that... Um, there's still protection with that, but um, some people like a kind of a closed unit. You know, they, they want to make a fashion statement that way or they just want to further protect their iPod. Mm -hmm. So our soft cases will have a flip cover with a magnetic closure. And then we also um, are going to be introducing what's called our Lux line, um, which is a high-end luxury line of iPod cases with different materials. And our first offering is going to be a snakeskin case, which I can tell you just getting some of the samples in um, just, just this past week. They look amazing. Well, Ms. Sharma, I wish you good luck. 
Well, thank you, and keep an eye on Casemate because we're coming out with a lot of cool new stuff. All right, then. I've been competing in the primaries all these times, but the primaries are not as prime as the Mersin Prime. Well, what is the Mersin Prime? It's one less than the prime power of two, so it's two to the prime number minus one. I hope I don't lose by one vote. Okay, and now here's uh, what's the matter you and we are going to defeat Mr. Jet Li and we have special, special killer kung fu killer move. But you know the most dangerous thing we can do is nothing comparable to the natural killer cell. But what is the natural killer cell? Well, natural killer cell, if you know or think you know, email us at gogs.hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your kung fu will become killer. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.